Welcome to Under the Hood, a podcast by Le Studio, where we chat about the ins and outs of entrepreneurship with real-life innovators. Hi everyone, I'm Sophie Duré. Today we chat with Shomit Goes. I met Shomit at an event recently where he was a speaker. He was presenting on the dilemmas we, f- we will be facing with the spread of AI, and I was impressed by his take on ethics and morality around the emergence of this new technology. I think it's a topic that we don't talk about a lot, the limits of innovation, or at least how to prevent new innovations to go into extremes. And that was what Shomit was talking about in a very, very, very interesting way. That's why I wanted him to be a, a guest on our podcast, and I'm very happy to, to have him today on, on this episode. To give you some context, Shomit Goes has been a Silicon Valley venture capitalist for over 20 years, helping build early-stage data-driven startups. Prior to becoming a VC, he was a software entrepreneur for 19 years, serving in all job functions and participating in multiple success- successful exits. Shomit sits on multiple corporate and scientific advisory boards and has been an appointed lecturer at UC Berkeley's College of Engineering and adjunct professor at the University of San Francisco School of Management. Shomit holds his degree in computer science from the University of California at Berkeley. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and I can't wait to have some feedback on it. Welcome to our podcast, Shomit. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, we always ask the same question at the beginning of the podcast, which is, if you can tell us something that you're proud of that has nothing to do with work. Sure. So, um, so we have three kids, and all of them are happy, and they're all positive individuals who make positive contributions to the people around them. So I'd say that that's the thing of which I'm most proud by far. I think that's a wonderful thing to be proud of for sure. Okay, let me get into my first question. I want to get you to talk a little bit about your own background, if you don't mind, and maybe disclose a little bit about your career as well, so that our listeners know who you are and understand the context for this interview. Of course. So um, so in my career, I've spent equal time, uh, both as a VC as an entrepreneur. Since 2001, I've been a Silicon Valley VC investing in early-stage software startups. I was a general partner at my last fund and was there through 2021. Uh, and since last year, I've been at my current venture fund. Um, in addition to being a VC, I've also been teaching entrepreneurship at the graduate level at the University of San Francisco and uh, data applications at the undergraduate level at UC Berkeley's College of Engineering, uh, both since 2018. I also regularly lecture at the Technical University of Denmark. Um, I'm on a few different technology advisory boards, uh, notable ones being probably the Bioinnovation Institute in Copenhagen and down at UC Riverside. I'm on one public co- corporate board, surgical technology company. Before becoming a VC, I spent 19 years as a startup entrepreneur and worked in pretty much every job function and was part of multiple successful exits. I uh, studied computer science at UC Berkeley. I started my professional life as a software engineer. And uh, maybe the most interesting thing I've done in my life, however, despite all of that, is um, I coached the girls varsity lacrosse team at a local high school for four years and led them to uh, three straight playoff appearances. That might be your biggest accomplishment indeed. That's amazing. Um, I mean, you had a very interesting career for sure, because you've gone through pretty much all the steps or let's say you've done 
a little bit of all the positions that you need to holistically understand the business world. So you've been an entrepreneur, you've been a VC, and you still are. You're a professor, and and you're being on boards of several companies. You're even a coach. Um, but you've got that 360 overview of business. And specifically, we're going to go into AI, but I think that's where your perspective is so interesting. Yeah, I'd like to think that my, my perspectives are based on having um, sat on all sides of the table here, entrepreneur, investor, um, even as a, as a teacher too. So um, my views are conditioned by all of those experiences. I think it's fair to say that you're an expert on AI, and that's definitely why I want you to have you on the podcast and get your perspective on things. Um, so where does the kind of interest for you comes in terms of looking at generative AI and, and what is the fascination around AI for you? Sure. So I think um, AI is the ultimate um, evolution of computer science. Uh, it's finally been enabled in a generalizable form thanks to you know, these masses of data that we can now collect and basically uh, process for free uh, to make sense of it thanks to the, the economics of the cloud. You know, data is the ultimate commodity and AI is the best way to make sense of it. A current generation of AI, generative AI, I think is really exciting because it brings the prospect of generating de novo results, you know, completely novel new results. And I'm not talking just about generative chat applications here, but built atop uh, large language models. Uh, those are great and cool. I'm a happy user. But specifically what I mean here is all the other generative AI technologies out there, things like variational autoencoders and generative adversarial networks and diffusion. And there are even newer generative approaches that are coming up, um, including one kind of exciting one known as Poisson flow generative models. And all of them bring the potential for augmenting human ingenuity through these generative approaches uh, without even including the LLM ones. It's pretty exciting. We've had data available for processing since the advent of computers, but past approaches I think were different because past approaches to processing the data were all retrospective. Uh, so think about the semantics that a database query might bring. Um, AI is different because it's predictive. It's more powerful as a consequence. Um, and that's absolutely the best thing you can do with data in my mind. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. You're right. And I mean, there's one thing that I'm also interested in AI is, I mean, you've said it, but it's it's one of these innovations that are really going to take us years ahead. I feel like we haven't had a technology or innovations in the past few years or, or even a couple of decades that have done so much in terms of advancement of the humanity. And it's it's really starting to get to get mainstream now or slowly getting into businesses. So do you think we've seen an innovation like this before or is it just unique to AI, that powerfulness behind the innovation, if you will? Yeah, so um, I think that's, and this is again, my bias is gonna come through here, but I think that this is, Genova in particular, this is the next uh, big leap in computer science. Um, the last really big leap in my mind was uh, 1970 when Cod published his famous relational database uh, paper. And um, you know, the underlying technology that, that came through with relational databases fueled the next 40 years of computer-based business applications. Um, but if you think about databases, uh, which were fine for their, for their era, but they encode rather limited amounts of data 
And they provide retrospective views only. So as I mentioned earlier, knowing things in prospect, you know, being able to predict is way more valuable than knowing things in retrospect. And here it's AI that delivers that ability to predict, know things in prospect. And the current generation of computing is characterized by these vast volumes of data, um, which we can finally store and process again, thanks to the uh, economics of the cloud. Um, it's essentially free. And this is what's, what's fueling all these breakthroughs in machine learning that we're seeing today. And the breakthroughs specifically are really many and varied. I really like all of the impactful things that have been done in generative AI. Um, I'll highlight the 2017 uh, work by Viswani et al. out of Google, which was the, um, the invention of the transformer. And the transformer, that's the T in GP2. This is the enabling technology beneath GP2. But it turns out the transformers are amazingly flexible. And you can use them in a whole range of applications, not just in language. But here's an enabling AI technology that can make use of all this vast computation that we have available and solve certainly consumer-oriented problems as per chat GPT and BARD. But that transformer is quite powerful and can solve a number of different um, problems as well. Um, and there have been other uh, you know, really impactful and complementary AI technologies beyond just transformer-based AI. So a couple of the, the really exciting ones nowadays, one is known as diffusion, and the other is known as a generative adversarial network, sometimes referred to as a GAN. And they both, just as transformers, they both prove to be super powerful generative technologies with application across a range of different applications. So I think one of the important things here for people to realize is that when, when people use the term generative AI, it's not just the large language model ones. It's not just chat, GPT, and BARD. Um, it's all the other technologies that also exist. And these different technologies are bringing generative impact in a bunch of different applications. In fact, uh, today we have a drug that's in human clinical trials for lung cancer that was completely designed by generative AI. And this is the potential that we have before us. And this is what, what's particularly exciting. That's very true. And I feel like AI, and that's maybe the most compelling part about it, is it's touching every and any sector, really. Um, it can be applied in any situation. And, and I think maybe people don't realize how long it took for AI to become what it is today. And I'm sure you've been reading and, and researching and talking to people in that space for a long time. I, I know you have. And But AI is just not something that came up two years ago. It's been around for a long time and, and people have been working on it and it's now what it is because of these years of research. Am I correct at all? Yeah, that, absolutely. So the, uh, the original thinking for AI actually goes back, I think it was 1956, uh, when there was a uh, conference that was convened at Dartmouth, if, if memory serves. And the initial approaches to AI were uh, basically they were rules-based and rules-based AI didn't really scale that well. What we're seeing nowadays is data-driven, data-based AI. So actions that are driven not by human-specified rules, but by the trends that are that are inherent in the data. And because we have so much data that's accessible to us, because basically anything with the power source today gives off a data stream, we have so much data and we have the technical ability to make sense of it, thanks to all the free computing cycles that are in the cloud and all these different techniques that have been developed, we can finally make sense of it and uh, drive AI based on the data itself. 
So AI has been around for a long time. The earlier approaches, the first approaches ran into limitations. The current approaches, which is all driven by, you know, what are the statistics within the data? They're the ones that have proven to be most scalable and most generalizable. And I think the future there is, is really, really vast. So when I met you at a recent event, you were talking about the ethics and regulations around AI, because that's such a new space in the mainstream sector that rules need to be created around how we're going to use AI and the different applications of AI. And we definitely need to have these um, frameworks for it, for it to not become something that we can't control really. So I would love if we can talk a little bit about this and then some of the dilemmas that you see in the AI space and generative AI space and their applications in terms of ethics and maybe future regulations. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's really one of the big challenges right now is how do we bound the use of AI? Uh, it's a very powerful technology and some of the existing approaches to um, regulating uh, even data-driven technologies uh, will probably fall short. But in summary, AI is just like um, every other human invention, you know, going back to the discovery of fire. You can use it for good or you can use it for evil. So how do we manage to use this new tool so that it benefits uh, rather than damages? AI has this, this huge potential of bringing incredible benefits. Equally, it has this huge potential for bringing incredible harm. And how do we navigate this, uh, this path in a knowledgeable way? People have already started to grasp the impacts of data-driven technologies and AI in particular on issues like privacy. And thankfully, we started to um, regulate this already through things like the CCPA here in California or the GDPR in, in Europe. Um, but we're not done here by any means. But here on the privacy side, we're on the right path. Privacy, though, isn't the only threat that AI brings. There's also the really uh, real prospect of job loss. Um, a few years ago, back in 2018, I'd written an article which was titled uh, Iron Man versus Terminator. And this is to highlight that uh, we can have fully automated AI, a la Terminator, which was sent here to destroy us, or we can have AI which augments the best of humanity, um, the Iron Man approach, and that we're always better off pursuing the Iron Man approach than uh, perhaps the Terminator approach. So how can we uh, manage this? Um, the economic and social ramifications of large-scale job loss, and is the productivity gain that AI brings, is it worth the cost? So we have privacy, we have job loss, um, we have issues of unintended bias that may be encoded in training data. Bias is terribly corrosive. It's really, really damaging, but how do we ensure that training data reflects um, you know, what, uh, what hu uh, human society looks like in a good way and not, not reflect uh, what human society looks like in a bad way. It's a very difficult task. Um, there's a possibility of actually using generative AI to create representative data sets, uh, synthetic data, to help remedy this. But uh, even synthetic data brings risk with it. Uh, this is a, an issue known as model collapse, which is also a bad thing. So difficult issues to confront, issues that must be addressed and, and must be solved, but really difficult to confront and solve. Yet another uh, ethical issue is using data-driven behavioral economics to influence human behavior. This is a practice known as hypernudging uh, because it leverages behavioral economics techniques 
it's largely invisible to us. You know, uh, our behavior gets influenced either on individual business, excuse me, individual basis or a um, group basis, but um, it's it's not something that we're able to see. So we're unaware of the fact that our behavior has been manipulated. So here too is an ethical issue. How can we make sure that we're not robbing people of their right to freely choose, that we're not influencing them to make decisions that they would not have otherwise made had they been fully informed? And then the final thing probably is uh, the fact that AI is very computationally intensive, meaning that it has a really large energy and carbon footprint. Uh, recent uh, research was done that showed that just training a single NLP, natural language processing uh, model, uh, consumed and produced the same carbon footprint as five automobiles for the life of those automobiles. So um, very damaging. So here too, we have to think about how, how do we responsibly use AI so the damage we cause to the environment does not in, in, um, outweigh the benefit that we bring to the, to the humans. Really interesting things to think about with this innovation, as you, as you just mentioned. I mean, it's fascinating. Um, I remember during your talk, you were saying that it's going to take a little time for people to catch up with all of these dilemmas and, and then trying to find solutions to them or mitigations. In the meantime, people should use their own kind of instincts and, and moral ethics and maybe think, would my mother approve of this? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, um, because people ask, so well, how do we do this? Is it enough to comply with the regulation? Uh, and my, my point is that I think that the regulation will always trail the technical capability. So it's not enough just to say we, um, we comply with regulation. And um, as you've well remembered here, Sophie, my ask is that everybody obey the mom rule. And the mom rule is if your mom knew what you were doing now, would she be proud of you? And so in addition to, of course, complying with all the regulations that are out there, go beyond that. And think about the things that you're doing. And is it something that, that your, your mom would consider to be ethical? And if so, great, do it. If not, if it violates the mom rule, then don't do it. Uh, again, it's not sufficient just to comply with regulation. You have to go beyond that. And it's because technology uh, evolves so quickly, uh, there's no possible way for regulation to keep pace. Uh, it's really incumbent on all of us to consider what we're doing and always try and do things for people's benefit, not for the opposite. And what I love about what you're telling us or really reminding us is really to think of it as an individual responsibility, which is, I think, sometimes something that is missing in the technology space and maybe specifically in Silicon Valley, where sometimes people tend to forget that we have a lot of power here. And we are providing the world with all of these amazing apps and softwares and, and products and all this innovation. But at the end of the day, we have to have a critical eye and individual ethics to make sure that we're not doing more harm and that we're providing more benefits for humanity. That's right. And the, and the word that you used, uh, Sophie, just the right one, responsibility. And we have to be responsible. And again, it's not enough just to comply with with laws and regulations, we have to go beyond that. We have to be responsible. Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to Y Combinator's demo day recently, and it's interesting for us as VC, and this is maybe your experience as well, Shumit, but when we go to these demo days, whichever ones they are, we do see trends emerging. And we usually see a lot of companies that are doing kind of similar things. And that's a signal to say, okay, this is the type of trends that we're seeing. 
I think maybe three quarters of the companies that we've seen during this demo day were AI based in some ways. And it's very interesting to see. I mean, my question is, I guess, for you as a VC, what are the emerging trends that you're seeing for AI specifically in the next couple of years? Yeah, so I'll agree with you that the trend that uh, we see everywhere is that everyone claims to be an AI company. Uh, that's unfortunate because it just ends up creating a lot of unnecessary noise. Challenges an investor is to be able to cut through all this hype and determine which companies actually understand AI and are applying it in an intelligent and non-hyped manner. My focus um, is on companies that are leveraging AI to drive predictions and not not, not simply classifications, but actually predictions. Um, and AI predictions uh, that are based on technologies that are other than the large language models, because I think the LLMs may have been commoditized already. And of course, everything done in support of an actual business model disrupting is something that yields an economic benefit. So this must be the underlying justification for the thing that you're doing, you know, quantifiable economic benefit. And of course, everything done with that compliance with the mom rule, done with responsibility and ethics. So those are the kinds of things to look for, I think, is AI that goes beyond just the, the LLM-based approaches right now, AI that's predictive, AI that's driven by actual economic benefit delivered, and AI that's done with uh, responsibility in mind. Okay, so now I want to ask you some questions, and maybe if you can answer uh, with your entrepreneur hat. Uh, so that we're going through all your different skills with these questions. I mean, I guess this question is is also asking you to answer as an entrepreneur, but also a professor and, and a VC as well. But uh, as you know, at the studio, we work with a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs and we try to give them the tools and the tips that they need to get into the space and, and build their own company. So I'm going to turn the question to you. Uh, what are some advice that you can give to new entrepreneurs? What should they know before they start? Are there any tips that you would want to share with them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the advice is the same that they've probably gotten elsewhere and for a very long time. And that's the very simple advice of, of know your customer. That's it. Um, you know, startup is like any other business that has to be fueled by an economic model. Um, the only way to know the economic model is to know your customer intimately. Um, technology is really irrelevant at this point. Um, startups are 100% about business model disruptions. Yeah, no, again, once again, knowing the customer. Um, and the technology only plays a supporting role. It's not the other way around. So understand your customer and understand what brings disruption to their business. And that's what will fuel success in your business. And then you can think about the technology that solves the problem that you've identified. So simple advice, just know your customer, talk to customers, know them intimately. Um, in fact, that's the best thing you can communicate when you sit down with an investor that you know the customer. I think that's very sound advice. Um, interestingly, that's also something that I've seen over the years where founders get excited about creating a product, but they don't really think about who's going to use it. They feel like this is going to come naturally, that you have a product and you'll find a market, but usually it's the other way around. So you're trying to solve a need, really. That's, that's the mindset that you have to have. Understanding your customer makes a lot of sense. I always start with the customer, period. And your experience as an entrepreneur yourself, um, do you remember some of the challenges that maybe you faced at the time and, and how you overcame them? I would, I would love to, to know about your own experience as an entrepreneur and, and for you to tell us more about that time. 
Yeah, so in my own experience as an entrepreneur, a couple of startups which I was involved as an entrepreneur, uh, both companies had successful out outcomes with IPOs. But um, the ones I'm thinking of, um, in both of these instances, um, we got the product wrong at the get-go. So the product we built, the product that we were financed by, by the VCs, was wrong. It's not what the customers were actually looking for. Um, and we discovered this kind of the hard way by actually going out on sales calls and finding out that the customers really didn't have an interest in the value proposition that we were bringing. So um, sobering to hear, but uh, in both of these instances, we were able to actually listen to what the customers actually did want. And we did pivot based on, on those wants and desires. And that's what led to the ultimate success of both companies was the pivoting, the ability to hear what the customer is saying, the humility actually that you need to be able to hear what the customer says, and the ability to pivot and do the thing that meets the customer's needs. And it's been shown, I think, if you look at even the academic studies behind it, uh, successful companies pivot. The unsuccessful ones don't pivot at all, or they pivot too many times. The smart ones, the ones that succeed, listen to what the customer tells them, and they pivot, I think, on average between one and two times, and that's what allows them to perfect the value proposition and hence drive their their revenues. That that is very true. And same again, I'm I'm gonna go back to my own experience and, and what you're saying resonates a lot. I think just being able to move fast in that sense and adapt to the data that you're receiving from the field and from the market is gonna is gonna really make or break uh, a company's idea and, and trajectory. That's actually a great segue to my almost final question to you. But talking about pivoting, we've heard from a lot of different entrepreneurs and investors that we've had on our podcast that one of the best qualities to have as an entrepreneur is being resilient, which I would agree. Um, I would definitely agree on. Would you, would you also agree or would you maybe mention other qualities that an entrepreneur should have? Yeah, no, I think uh, resilience, which I actually call it tenacity, but resilience, tenacity is one of them. So I think probably that the most important ones are probably first and foremost would be integrity, uh, because you know if you don't have um, integrity, you don't have trust. Um, if you don't have trust, you have no business relationship. In fact, you have no personal relationships. It's probably the number one thing that you need as an entrepreneur is integrity. Uh, integrity that allows your co-founders to trust you, your customers to trust you, your investors to trust you, etc. Um, then as I spoke about previously when you'd asked about uh, experiences from my, my startup career, you need to have a, a measure of humility because this is what allows you to objectively hear what the market is telling you. Um, if you don't have that humility, if you uh, become really thick-headed and pursue uh, what you think is your own great idea, it may end in failure. And then of course, as you just mentioned, resilience and tenacity. Um, being an entrepreneur, I think the job description is that you wake up every morning and get punched in the face. Uh, of course, the weak of a heart go home in, in such a circumstance. Uh, and it's only with tenacity and resilience can entrepreneurs survive. Uh, and I think finally, um, startup life, being an entrepreneur, it's a team sport. So you need to be able to work as part of a cohesive team. Um, if you're a disruptive individual, a disruptive personality, it's not going to work out and you shouldn't do a startup. Startup, you know, being in a startup, being an entrepreneur is a, it's a team sport, team exercise you must be able to work well and in harmony with others. So I think those are the four things that highlight integrity, humility, tenacity, and the ability to work in the team. I love that. And I, I think the last point that you bring up, uh, which is being part of the team and working as a team as being very important is, 
is such a key element of being an entrepreneur. So I love that you brought that up. Um, it's definitely all about people. I mean, I'm very convinced that, you know, entrepreneurship and being in a startup is, is um, just about people. At the end of the day, you, you want to have the right people with you. You want to be the right uh, person for the job. And, and, and it's all about human qualities, really. So, um, no, thanks for, for giving this as a, as a piece of advice to our listeners. So let me get to my final question. That's uh, something that we've definitely hinted um, throughout our conversation. I feel like kindness has kind of been um, here in our conversation throughout the whole podcast. But at Le Studio, we talk a lot about kindness in business and how important we feel like kindness is as a skill as well. And, and also something that you should provide to others and how a big of a difference kindness can 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 be in any type of relationships so my question to you Shomit is is there an act of so my question to you Shomit is is there an act of kindness that maybe you've given or received recently that you would want to talk to us about gee I think I get acts of kindness all the time so I, I wouldn't even be able to enumerate all of them um, I'll just I'll just point out one in that case that I got to experience Thursday and Friday this this week. Um, I might met someone who's a, a colleague of business, haven't seen him in years, but I uh, know him quite well. And and when we got together, of course, we shook hands. But as well, he gave me just the warmest hug and the, the emotional freighting of this act. Uh, you know, the warmth that it showed and the kindness that it showed is always disarming. And I always appreciate gestures such as that because it's the emotion that comes through in the physical act. So that was an act of kindness that I, I really appreciated. And if I'm lucky, I'll get, get some more of that from someone else uh, yet again later today. Oh, I love this. Yeah, you're right. Well, thank you so much, Shomit. I, I would love to talk to you more, obviously, but we also want to be respectful of your time. I think you shared with us very interesting insights and, and tips, and I'm happy we got to touch upon your career and obviously your expertise on AI. Um, so that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Sophie, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a thrill. this is the end of our podcast i hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as i did you will find more information on shomit and some of the publications that he has available in the description of this podcast i recommend that you read some of what is written because it's really interesting i always learn a lot after the presentation that he did that i attended in person and obviously reading what he has available online is eye-opening follow us on instagram and linkedin at lustudio.io and then obviously if you want any information on what we're doing at Le Studio, you can go to our website lustudio.io and get some more information there as well. Tune in for our next episode in two weeks and we'll see you there.